0: disclaimer. The views expressed are those of the speaker and do not reflect the official guidance or position of the United States Government, the Department of Defence, the United States Air Force or the United States Space Force. We hope you enjoy the episode. Hey, what's up guys and welcome to episode 95 of Talk 4, the Quick Fire podcast where we ask four great questions to unique and interesting people. Behind the mic today is your host Louis Scoopian, that's me and let me introduce just our incredible guest for today, Tucker callsign Cinco Hamilton who's going to be answering our questions today. Cinco, welcome aboard the Talk 4 podcast, please say hi to the fine people listening and just give us a quick rundown of who you are and what you do and then we're going to shoot some unreal questions your way.
1: Awesome. Louie, it's great being with you. Uh, hello, fine people. I'm Cinco Hamilton, uh, I'm actually a kid who dropped out of full time high school and became what I consider an accidental uh, fighter pilot and test pilot for United States Air Force. And I currently have two jobs in the Air Force. So, one, I'm the operations group commander of the 96th Test Wing down here at Eglin Air Force Base in the Panhandle of Florida. And that includes me overseeing the developmental and flight tests of nine different airframes, which include uh, three of which I currently fly, the F-15C, the F-15E, and the F-15EX. Uh, this also uh, this job also includes overseeing flight tests of autonomous aircraft, uh, EVTOL aircraft, which the Air Force is trying to learn how to deal with those electronic, uh, you know, um, vertical takeoff and landing, and um, And then in addition to my operations group commander job, I'm also the chief of AI testing operations for the Department of the Air Force, where I'm helping lay a strong foundation for AI policy and education, and what we call like the ethical operationalization of AI powered capability. Great being here with you.
0: Wow, I mean that i mean just from from me in in somerset in the uk running a little podcast and stuff that to me just sounds like as an aviator fan as well that just sounds like the mouthful of the coolest sounding jobs you could ever have imaginable quite literally <laughs> so all i can say is well done you on the on what is clearly an insane career in your in, in what you're doing but you know what what I like to do in this podcast to start off usually with is just go into the backstory. I think yours would absolutely be no exception to what is clearly just insane career in in aviation, obviously the military. So just run us back to the start before we dig into all the the really cool stuff. So, um, I'd love to get familiar with the backstory. Walk me through your military career so far. Why did you join and just take us through to becoming a colonel and your current position and your role now?
1: Yeah, I'm happy to do it. It's not a path that I think is um, is naturally typical, especially for pilots. So I joined Air Force ROTC at the University of Colorado, really on a whim. Um, I had just watched Saving Private Ryan. Uh, one of my favorite movies was Braveheart. My parents were firefighters. I knew I wanted to serve, but I didn't know how I wanted to serve. Um, and so no plans of joining the military, no plans of being a pilot. I received a brochure for ROTC. Uh, at my university, just right before going to college. And I figured I'd give it a try. I like, gave them a call and was like, hey, what is ROTC? What is like serving in the military look like? And they said, "I'll oh, come down and, and just check out one of the classes. And uh, I showed up uh, completely unprepared, knowing nothing about the military at all, other than what I've seen in movies. And I loved it, man. The people were amazing the discipline it brought to my life. I was serving something greater than myself, something I believed in, democracy, freedom. Um, And I joined ROTC kind of on a whim like that. And then I was not qualified to fly. So I actually failed the depth perception test. And then uh, I went through all of ROTC not thinking I was going to be a pilot. Um, And they, like two months before, they told me that I actually um, could pass the test if I did this one thing. And so I ended up, being able to uh, qualify as a pilot. And they're like, hey, do you want us to put you in for a pilot slot? And I didn't really know what else I wanted to do other than I wanted to serve. And so I said yes. And so right before graduating, I ended up getting a pilot slot. And then I went to Navy pilot training. There were like 5% of Air Force uh, pilot candidates went to Navy pilot training. And uh, I almost quit numerous times actually. I, I find I I laugh about it now because it's kind of ridiculous, you know, 20-year-old, 21-year-old me thinking about it. Uh, I found it boring. Um, and my wife really convinced me to stick with it because she understood that there was something beyond just the flying. And she was right. I fell in love with the mission, the people, the technology. Um, it's basically uh something that I have uh coveted ever since. Something um so much larger than yourself, but it, the expressing my service in such a meaningful way, uh, through aviation has been awesome. Um, and nearly right away after becoming uh, a fighter pilot, I knew I wanted to become a test pilot, marry my engineering background, um, with this newfound love of, you know, military aviation. Uh, and, and that didn't happen overnight. Become a test pilot is a very long process. Um, I was an air liaison officer for a couple of years in Germany. Those are the folks that are on the ground helping coordinate the aircraft, uh, talking with the ground troops. Um, and then I had an amazing opportunity to stand up uh, an intelligence surveillance, a surveillance reconnaissance aircraft called the MC-12 in Afghanistan. We hadn't flown it yet. Um, And we were doing tactical manned ISR. So tactical being like the eyes and the ears of the operators, like overhead when they're in the business, right? As special operators. And um, we were crewed. So there was a a crew of uh, four people and uh, it was amazing, man. some of the most rewarding things I've done uh, were supporting Operation Enduring Freedom and the the troops, um, the NATO troops, like the, the uh, not just American, the, the whole team of folks out there, um, you know, making sure that uh, we were uh, doing what we need to do out there to pr- protect, you know, our freedom and our democracy. And, and from there, I became a test pilot, uh, did some awesome stuff with uh, F-15 C's and E's, uh, 12 years ago, making sure weapons and systems worked the way they were supposed to. And then got into the F-35 game, uh, became like super fortunate and was the commander of F-35 development for a couple of years, uh, which really opened my eyes. And you hear jets taking off in the background, maybe. I've worked right on the runway here. It's uh, it's glorious, but it's a, annoying at times when uh, you're trying to think and all you hear is jet noise, right? Whack, like complaining. Uh, either way, I ended up uh, doing F-35 stuff uh, and fortunately, again, I ended up out at MIT, um, doing a fellowship for the military. And I was able to become the director of the Department of the Air Force and MIT AI accelerator. And that, dude, that opened my eyes. It was just like, this new and exciting software code, right, AI. Um, and it inspired me because it has so much tremendous potential to change everything, not just in our military, but in our society, but also made me quite guarded because it can be misused. And, and so it really made me wanna to continue to serve for at least this assignment. Um, and I had this opportunity to become uh, the operations group commander uh, down here at Eglin, and then dual had it as well with that other uh, chief of AI test and ops role. So that's kind of from the very beginning. To where I'm at now, it's been a journey. I've loved it. Amazing people. Um, And uh, I could think of no better way to be serving uh, my community, uh, my nation through um, other than through what I've been doing.
0: Wow. Wow. I mean, talk about overachiever of the year, or what? That's just crazy. Uh, what, what, a, what a career. Um, but look so looking at kind of the stuff that you do, if I search your name on Google or something, what I get back is the stuff obviously about what you're doing right now with the AI stuff. So, now AI, um, it's, it's so interesting to me because it seems like it's kind of come out of almost what feels like seemingly nowhere. Yeah, you know, I, I remember a couple of months back, maybe not a couple of months, maybe a few more than a couple, but. I was doing a podcast with a guy. I was actually on his show and he, at the end of it, we were kind of having a business chat and stuff. And he kind of went into saying, oh, so there's actually this thing that I've discovered really early on. It's called chat, chat GPT. Don't tell anyone. And then like one week later, it blew up everywhere. And there's, you know, I go on there, I'm thinking, I don't know what this is going to be. And then it just blows my mind what that thing can do. And then only, only a couple of weeks ago, I was, um, let's put it this way. I've, I've seen the work of, professional photography editors and people who do graphic design and stuff and you can there's a certain amount you can do of like an old picture or something or something that's really pixelated and I, I remember I was doing a, a podcast with the former commander of the USS Cole uh, commander Kirk Lippold and I was looking for a picture of the USS Cole uh for my backdrop picture for the for the, the graphic design basically and all of the pictures were so old and outdated eventually I made it work but I eventually found this thing in the editing program I was using called like Enhancer or something and then I just put this picture into it and about 15 seconds later it popped out literally the most crystal clear sharpest image of this old picture I'd ever seen I just it blows me away but I don't understand it so my second question was kind of leading towards like this stuff feels like a miracle in my eyes and a lot of people who I'm talking to about it too they're like yeah I kind of we kind of that it exists but we don't know what this is so i was hoping you could kind of just run us through like obviously artificial intelligence other than what it says in the tin what is that like can you just run me through what that exactly is how it's created and where does it like originate from you know is there a source to it just how is an ai made yeah yeah. run me through
1: it yeah i mean absolutely this is a, a really important question you're asking because I think one of the most important things we need to do as a society is to start understanding and learning about uh this type of technology because dude I mean not just what you just described about you know enhancing a photograph or whatever like it is going to revolutionize many aspects of our society so it is exciting there's amazing potential there's some things we need to be aware of uh ultimately though AI it's been around for decades so we recently had the convergence of the algorithms that have been worked and then accessible supercomputers. So you need like really, really big, powerful computers. So computers have come a long, uh, a long way over the decades. And more recently, like they've actually really increased their capabilities. So you have the algorithms, you have the computers. I have my bat phone ringing in the background. That means there's an emergency airborne right now, but my staff, I think will take care of that. Yeah, I think we're good. They picked up. Um, all right, back to, back to AI, right? We have uh, flying going on in the background for me and all this other stuff. Hopefully your listeners aren't too distracted by all that. Um, we have uh, the algorithms, we have the supercomputers, and now we have a ton of data, like loads and loads of data. So the convergence of all three of those has made AI really what it is right now. Um, and uh, AI, in kind of the simplest explanation, it's software code, right? Um, I think it's important for people to know that it is just software. AI is fairly misunderstood nowadays. Um, And so, learning about it is, of course, as I mentioned, uh, super important because if you learn about it at the highest level, it is going to demystify it and keep you and your listeners, everyone from catastrophizing our AI enabled future. Um, As I love to tell folks, AI is not magic, it is math. Uh, So, you always hear the term black box, um, and people have used like the AI as a black box and this is a narrowly de- uh, description this a narrow description of certain aspects of AI but AI is not magic um it uh, you know it has um aspects of it that the the designers, the mathematicians, the data scientists, the AI experts, um, aren't quite certain how all of the interactions are going. So for instance, in a deep neural network, you'll have many layers, and there'll be weights to the layers, and those weights, like 500,000 parameters, and the, the AI experts may know how all of the weights are situated in order to give an output. So that is probably super confusing what I'm describing, but the point is in that one narrow application, it is somewhat of a black box. Like they're not quite sure how the computer has adjusted itself and adjusted these weights, but we take this black box misconception that the AI professionals don't understand the interactions of AI in general. Like how we can apply AI, how AI can work with other software code, how it can empower and enable other uh, systems like robotics. We do understand that. We don't understand all of the intricacies sometimes because it is so complicated, but that's not to mean that we um, aren't in control over that. Does that make sense?
0: Mm, it does. Yeah, but I mean, it's it, it feels like, it's it's one of those things isn't it it's so kind of like how do I explain it it feels so new all of it and it feels so kind of like we're still trying to grasp it aren't we that's like where we're at with it or kind of trying to understand like what this thing is especially from like a society standpoint I mean look at all the businesses nowadays are uh, integrating AI into their stuff even from customer service to even me I'm, I'm doing bits and bobs of AI it, it speeds things up but the whole like the process of making it and stuff that's what kind of baffles me a bit i mean who do you have to be to to develop it well right and i mean honestly it's becoming
1: easier to develop some of it the algorithms aren't that that advanced like it's not the most advanced math ever um it's like vectored math uh in combination with a number of um approaches to uh you know ca- characterizing and categorizing Uh, certain code and data sets in a a certain way. Um, I mean, I think you're going to find that it is fairly accessible to create your own AI algorithm, if you will. What's harder is sometimes having access to the right supercomputers, having the uh, right access to data sets. And when we talk about like the data set, like loads of data, you're talking about lots of data. Um, Okay, so let me give... let me give a few other thoughts regarding like basic AI stuff. So, one, all of those things to say the black box and AI, we do understand how to write AI code. We understand what's going on for the most part. Maybe not all those intricate interactions, but for the most part, we can put guardrails around it. Um, and it's important for people to know, like, you know, for instance, Uber's AI software code that allows, you know, riders to be matched with drivers is not going to all of a sudden become sentient and take over the world, right? It's a mathematical impossibility. Like AI is just this software code. Um, And it's what what we call deterministic soft, pardon me. It's unlike deterministic software code. So deterministic software is rules-based software. Um, You take your input, you apply some repeatable code and you get a measurable consistent output. So it's kind of like the equation two plus two is four, two plus two is always four. You know, it never changes. So providing one input to software code will always provide a specific and knowable output. That is deterministic software, and that is not AI, artificial intelligence. Um, it's the the opposite of that deterministic code is AI, or what we really are talking about is machine learning. So um, when I say machine learning, uh we're really talking about AI, that's where our society is really talking about. Um and uh, machine learning is, is code that's learning from the data and the guardrails that you give it. So it's not just going out and doing its own thing. Um, and so for instance, if you feed a machine learning or AI, I'll just use AI cause that's what people use, but we're talking machine learning. If I, um, if I feed a machine learning algorithm, a picture of a dog and I label it a picture of a dog, and then I feed it 10 million pictures of a dog and 5 million pictures that are not dogs and tell the software, which one is which, um, based on the initial software code, um, the AI is learning um, mathematical characteristics of those pictures. So it's starting to realize like, and it it's down to the pixel. So it's just putting like mathematical numbers to aspects of a picture to categorize basically what a dog is and what not a dog is. And the end state is being able to give it a picture of anything and Let you tell if if it's a dog or not. So in its way, uh, in a in a way, it's a super fancy autocomplete. So it can do things with pictures and videos and words. It just uh, like predicting though, um like what the so in in instance the uh, enhancement that you talked about earlier. It takes a photo and it enhances. It's predicting. It's just a prediction. So it's not necessarily real. It's predicting what it thinks that picture would look like if it were enhanced right and ChatGPT is is actually very similar it is a really fancy autocomplete it's predicting what the next most likely word should be after you put in another set of words but it's not thinking and learning the way that you and i think and learn it's all just math the way that it's doing it um and basically we're able to do this on scale this fancy autocomplete To unimaginable, just a few years ago, unimaginable uh, degree, right? So, um, when we think about how it's going to be applied in different like career fields, maybe it is um, the artists and uh, that, or uh, maybe aviation, uh, maybe empowering autonomy some fashion. Like it, they're narrow applications that are able to help us, um, like make patterns. Um, make predictions, uh, maybe prescribe certain actions that would, uh, you know, um, help us out. And and so I I think of AI as in three-phase descriptive, predictive, and prescriptive. So descriptive is like describing data, uh, maybe summarizing data. It's describing what you already have uh predicting is now that autocomplete like it is predicting what that picture should look like or what that next sentence would be or in ChatGPT, like what the next few paragraphs may be um it's predicting or prescri- pres- prescribing is now taking it to the next degree and saying okay well this aircraft we're uh now going to prescribe what it should do in a situation in order to um, maintain its objective. So it's gonna prescribe certain inputs into the system. Um, And so that's the stuff we're looking at here is figuring out like, how do we use AI, being eyes wide open? How do we use AI to help us um, with some type of objective that we may have in aviation? A lot of that is like basic station keeping of an aircraft and really um, uh, aspects of flying uh, that, that the human can ultimately lean on so think of uncrewed and crewed teaming like how does a human lean on and uh, say an uncrewed vehicle off its wing or how does a human rely on some type of AI powered capability inside the cockpit to help optimize performance of the entire system of systems does that does that all
0: make sense too? That does make sense to me. Yeah. That's a really good explanation. And um, that's definitely cleared up a lot of the gray area for me as well, I think, but so kind of listening to you. So obviously, like I mentioned the, the whole AI thing to me feels like it's very new. It's very advanced and stuff, but from kind of listening to how you're describing it, obviously not to kind of diminish it at all, but it sounds quite simple in its action. So out of just interest, like in your opinion, where in a light in like a human's life cycle for example where is this thing right now in its kind of potential like are we in ai infancy like is it just out the womb is it kind of like teenage years like whereabouts is this and how far is this going to develop over the next foreseeable do you think yeah
1: dude it's hard to say i mean i will tell you in my personal opinion um so ai has been around for decades i wouldn't want to call it like out of the womb i'd be probably offending all of the like amazing, amazing people that have been developing this technology for so long. Um, But I think it's still kind of in the infancy because that convergence has happened and is happening. Uh, I don't think we fully understand or appreciate like how big a change AI, um, like uh, AI poses for our uh, society. And that is from everything from like the military applications um, that we are currently uh, looking at and trying to understand AI enough and develop AI the right ways in order to address how it will be applied militarily. Um, but yeah, I mean, chat GPT, that is what we call generative AI. So it's generating, using AI is generating some output, right? Predicting the next output. I mean, just generative AI is going to change a ton of career fields, right? And it it's not necessarily bad, not at all. I I think for me it's the it's the evolutionary step of software code. Just like ATM machines back in the 80s and 90s, they thought they were going to, you know, destroy the banking industry and all the people were going to lose their jobs, the bank tellers. But in fact, we have more bank tellers now than we did back then. It's just they're able to do certain things. Uh, different things. Let the machine do it; it's good at. Let the human do what it's good at. Um, and that, I think, is what we're trying to figure out now: that balance of yes, it's going to make it so generative AI is going to create contracts, you know. And so you may not need as many people writing contracts, but you probably need just as many people working on how to uh, philosophize and um, you know advance uh, contractual professions. You know what I mean? So I think there's uh, like this awesome opportunity for us to use AI in order to enhance and optimize human performance and illuminate things that we didn't even know were available or possible. Um, you mind if I tell a quick story about the game or the, well, the game Go, but the the movie AlphaGo? Oh yeah, you go for it. I'm, I'm loving this. Have you, have you, fought, have you, paid attention to AlphaGo. Did you ever hear about this movie?
0: I don't believe I it's did. Really <laughs> I must, I must yeah, check yeah. It out. It's
1: really great. I'm going to go ruin it, you know, because I'll tell you the punchline. It's a, uh, a documentary um, about the um, AlphaGo, which is an AI system playing the game of Go and the world champion, uh, you know, Go players. Um, and specifically, Alpha is about uh, uh, a computer playing Lee Seedal, who is a South Korean champion at Go. Um, I love this story and this example because it, it it brings to bear a few important topics for for your listeners. Um, Go is extremely complicated. Uh, yes, Deep Mind beat Gary Kasparov in the 90s. AI, kind of AI, you could argue it was just autonomous, deterministic code. in AI, they're you know I, I, the way I present it right now, they're different. Um, but either way, people never thought AI would be able to beat. Um, anyone in the game of Go because Go is so stinking complicated. It is very complex. Um, either way, so they create an AI system. They train it um, through you know millions of games of Go. It learns to play the game of Go. Uh, it has guardrails. Once again, it's not going to become sentient and like take over things because it knows the game of Go. It's right. It doesn't work that way. So it knows the, the game of Go and it starts playing Lee Doll, and it beats him in the first game. It's a five-game uh, series, um, and people are kind of floored, amazed that the computer can do that. The second game, it plays Lee doll, and then on the 37th move of the second game, it places one of the little Go pebbles, and you guys go Google what a Go board looks like. It's like black and white uh, pebbles, and it, it's really simple in the, the way you play, but it's very complicated in how many um, outcomes there could possibly be because of the, the way the the way the game is situated. Either way, so in the 37th move, the, the computer puts this pebble in the weirdest place, And everyone thinks the computer is just like totally screwed up and is going to lose the game. And this is an example of how a computer just cannot understand something how complicated as a game of Go, right? And then they realize a few moves later, like a half hour later into the game, that that 37th move in the second game was one of the most brilliant moves ever played in the game of Go at that level, and completely transformed the way that professionals looked at the game because it looked so far ahead into the future of the the game itself that it made this brilliant move that no human would have ever imagined it you could do and so that 37th move actually changed the game of go even Lee Sedol himself said he was going to be looking at the game of go differently because that happened. And so it's illuminating things for us that we may not know is available to us, right? Like the data's out there, we just haven't brought it all together and the computer can help us do that because the computer can go through data so quickly. But there's also that fourth game that people don't talk about as much in that same five game matchup. It beat Lee Seedal, it beat Lee Seedal again in the second game, but had that crazy 37th move that was brilliant, beat him again and then in the fourth game, in the 87th, 78th, somewhere around their move. It uh, played a pebble in another place where people thought like, oh, maybe this is this brilliant move again. And no, it was this horrible move. And it was the one game that AlphaGo lost because it basically got confused with something else he did. It wasn't trained in that one example, the way that they had gotten to that point. And it made a horrible move. And so it should also be... Like a, a warning for us, right? There are there are absolute uh, necessary guardrails and governance that we need to have over AI because it can do things that are unpredictable or un um, unexpected. And the same is true for ChatGPT, right? We've seen all those examples um, of you know, like at the very beginning. I think if you asked ChatGPT how many people lived on Mars, it would give you a non-zero answer. Well, why? Because it was trained on the internet and on the internet, all the, all the data on the internet and on the internet, there's wonderful examples of people living on Mars, like from fiction, right? But it doesn't know science fiction from fiction. It it just knows the data that it's given, right? So that AlphaGo story, I always love because it shows the potential and it shows the pitfall that we need to be eyes wide open for as we, you know, develop it now for uh, applications and especially in the military for like aviation applications and military
0: applications mm, wow <laughs> really interesting stuff and it's interesting listening to this because it's it just kind of t- to me it's it's fascinating how it's obviously incredible what humans are doing in the development of this thing but it's also amazing how it's also surprising us with the things that it can do something i something i kind of wanted to touch on as well before we move on to kind of like the third and fourth question um so kind of on scenarios with AI and stuff, and it's surprising us with different things. A little story I heard um, the other day. I think so. Someone had asked like an AI to make. I think it was seventy-five bucks. By the way, I love saying bucks. It's a UK guy that just that 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 sets me on fire. Um, so it wanted to go and trade stocks but then it found it couldn't like access the trading platform or something because it had the anti-ai anti-bot stuff measures inside of it so what does it do it goes to like a freelance platform or something and gets in contact with some guy and kind of says i need you to help me basically get into this platform so i can trade stocks then the guy who's the freelancer he says it's going to pay him basically and the freelancer gets a bit suspicious he's like why would i why would i do this kind of thing and then he i think he asks asks this thing Are you an AI? And then it answers no. And I think that's really interesting because when they looked in its internal logs, it said something, I think, along the lines of like it needed to lie to the human because humans would be biased against AI and wouldn't help it, for example, if they knew what it really was, for example. And that's what it logged. But that kind of got me thinking a little bit along the lines of like, if it's capable of lying, what's to stop it from kind of learning to lie to the human? that Obviously that's running the experiment too and changing like its data logs so that it can u- ultimately accomplish its mission. So kind of what are like the guidelines around something like that and how far, how, how scary can it be in its worst situation, do you think?
1: Well, I think it depends um, on how it's trained, um, what its software code is. Like you, you can put guardrails up that would make it so that it would not do those things, that it would not try to um, like, there, there's a there's an optimization problem that we could talk about, like a match um, between like giving it a reward function. Man, there's a great book um, The oh, what was it? You Look Like a Thing and I Love You. I think it's that. I think it's actually, oh yeah, You Look Like a Thing and I Love You. It's on my bookshelf right there. It gives these examples of like how you, yeah, if done like haphazardly, if done like quickly without thought, um, you can create environments in which uh, there is an alignment problem, which is really like a mismatch of um, a a human not understanding like possible outcomes that could come from something, Um, but also an optimization, like reward optimization problem um, with the the, the way that you're training some of those algorithms. So some of these algorithms are trained through reinforcement learning. It's like playing a game and it learns over and over again um, through reward functions, like what it should or shouldn't do. And in that book, you are you look like a thing, and I love you. It's great. The way that she she's a hilarious author. Um, but the way she she describes it is there was a um a hallway uh, that splits into a Y. And the and this all like in simulation, right? Just a computer game, basically, and you're supposed to uh, train an AI algorithm, or the AI algorithm was was learning to make people go down one side of the hallway, right? And so it it would learn after. And This gets a little complicated um, with the idea of like it learning ten thousand, a million times. Like it doesn't know the rules at the beginning. Um, it gets little like reward functions as it does something right. So after it is running this thousands upon thousands upon thousands of times, it's learning to like um, like turn into a uh, a human, right? Like or turn into a a blocker that that somehow like directs people or shows an arrow for people to go the other way. And and then you you can, as it's learning, you can put in different functions to like more reward or less reward based on how it's doing. And in one of the examples she uses in the book, like the robot starts killing the people that go down the wrong hallway. And you're like, ah, what, you know, and she describes like, well, of course, it, it doesn't know that it's not supposed to kill the people, right? It's just this simulation, um, this AI algorithm. And so then it, you say, no, you're going to lose points if you do that. So it stops doing that. It learns over like through more thousands and thousands upon iterations that it should not be killing people. And then it ends up creating what ultimately is a wall. Like it turns itself into a wall so people can't get by it and it goes down the hallway the correct way. Um, so that's just an example, of, like this optimization problem. And so there is like absolute concern that if you are creating this incorrectly, that you don't have the right controls, that you're not abiding by what we call the five ethical principles of AI and the DOD, that's responsible, equitable, traceable, reliable, and governable. Like you're not abiding by those, you can have outcomes that are going to be bad. And maybe you have a system that thinks it's okay to lie right? And it's maybe rewarded even for lying. Um, the, the military would absolutely um, not uh, develop or um, support any of those type of algorithms. Like we are trying to be as transparent as possible as we develop this capability because we have to be and our nation needs us to be or people deserve us to be, right? Like this is our role. Um, so yeah, you pick on something though that I think Uh, we need to be eyes wide open on, but we also need to realize it's not like unsurmountable. Like we just need to govern the technology correctly. We need to have our lawmakers understand it enough so that we can start putting in protections. So our consumers and our society aren't hurt by nefarious actors. And, and I will like to say that's a true, that's true for all technology, right? Like at times AI is this unknown and people are confused about it because they don't know what they're told other than dystopian storytelling coming out of hollywood right so they don't know um and and so they could astrophize how bad it is but the reality is like all technology needs to be developed ethically right like from uh deterministic autonomy so not ai autonomy deterministic autonomy right to elevator doors to like our phones right like all of this has the potential of doing things that we would um that we don't uh, approve of and don't like and and we need to make sure that we're ethically developing them, which means we also need to understand, you know, what we're dealing with.
0: Absolutely. That's that's very well put to think. And this, this really leads well into into my third question, actually, because you mentioned obviously at the start of that you said obviously, like when we rush this kind of thing, there can be problems and we need to be able to do this ethically and stuff. So this leads really well into my third question. I love it. Um, so I- I've heard that an F-16 fighter pilot did a dogfight with an AI piloted and controlled jet, and he lost five out of five times. A little bit like kind of what you said about, you know, the chess thing as well. But and this kind of sounds to me like it would change the game and provide like an unmatched air superiority that would change warfare really. Forever. And I have no doubt that opposing countries are trying to stop this from happening and will be doing their own research and their own integration like we are. And I have trust. I have trust in my NATO guys that we're doing the right thing here. I have trust in you, but we don't I, I don't know what's going on over on the other side of the world. So my question is, if these other countries are potentially falling behind in their progress, Are you concerned that they might take dangerous shortcuts and rush their own integration in an attempt to kind of keep up without adequate safeguarding, which could potentially result in like a major problem if something were to go wrong in the rushing of this?
1: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think kind of to my last point too, so rushing technology, AI enabled or not, right, any of that is bad. Um, It's exactly why we meticulously test our capability and so, from the birth of aviation, really, there was a career field that that went hand in hand with the right flyer and its flight test professional, right? We we didn't necessarily call it that back then, or they didn't do that back then, uh, you know. But from the beginning, we needed to apply a scientific method to ensure our aircraft uh, and our and our aircraft systems worked the way they were supposed to. Um, so this is true for all technology. AI enable capabilities no different. So we absolutely need to ensure that we ethically develop our technology. Um, and and I I do think that we need to have the conversation with the entire um, international partnership. So from competitors to um, our um, our uh, allies, right? Like we need to be able to have that in in a, a fashion that's meaningful. Just like we've had many conversations about uh, how we are going to apply uh, certain aspects. Of our military instrument of power, um, how how should we, as a world community, you know, agree to develop certain things? And I think AI should be a part of the conversation, just like the use of nuclear weapons or the use of other types of weapons are a part of that conversation. Um, I do think that AI in the cockpit um, is pretty uh, pretty awesome opportunity, right? Um, so I think there's one that's in the cockpit, and then one that is in another cockpit, maybe like an, an uncrewed cockpit. And those are um, equally, in my mind, interesting. And not to be like, I'm not too worried about um, that. And I can kind of explain um, why, at least the way that we're developing it. But the thing you referred to was um, the DARPA dogfight. So, DARPA Alpha Dogfight, that's right, Alpha Dogfight. DARPA Alpha Dogfight, uh, it, we we're using AI as a game, right? It was learning how to dogfight in a simulation and we were optimizing performance, um, which was great. We we proved, just like they proved in the game of Go and like they prove in other games, that it can play a game, right? It can learn and play a game. But how do we translate that um, and go from the philosophy concept to form in actual aviation? is pretty awesome opportunity um so and i'm i'm happy to to jump into that a little bit right now Um, i think aviation uh is ripe as with many parts of our society um for ai enabled autonomy to help optimize the performance of the pilot um that can go from training um that can actually go from before training and like identifying the people that are you know um different skill sets uh that um a human could have that would make them really good at at managing the battle space right um so it can help with that but you don't want to have it just do it on its own as we've seen with ai have you read about like ai trying to hire people for i think it was google or some company you know years ago and and the company rightfully was like didn't use it and and showed the world transparently like hey if we had used it it would have been sexist and racist and because it, it was being trained the wrong way. Right. So this is where the human needs to have the oversight The human needs to be interacting with the technology, understanding it enough and interacting to oversee, to allow it to really optimize. And so when it comes to yes, picking people, training people, and then in the cockpit, deciding certain things, illuminating maybe aspects of, um, the world around you that the pilot was not aware of. So I have a lot of sensors on my aircraft. I could, i would love to use ai and it doesn't always by the way need to be ai it could just be good old run-of-the-mill autonomy deterministic software code but i would love the ability to take all that information and weave together um a picture uh of that data that maybe i wasn't aware of like hey there's something going over on in this sector that you may want to put your sensors in right like that type of enhancement To my capability would be awesome, right? It's illuminating things that I didn't know was possible. And then in the same breath, maybe it's to a point like when I started flying fighters, I flew the aircraft, right? I was controlling it completely with a stick and with my throttles. Well, in the F-35, I would oftentimes take off and turn my auto throttles on and my turn my autopilot on because it was super fancy and they were helpful, right? And so now my head was no longer like having to fly as much. Now I was not having to do that because the computer was doing that and I was able to manage the airspace, uh, the like the touch in front of me and all that, right? So this is like the next step of aviation is, well, let's maybe give some of that basic control to a computer to optimize and and to get me in the right orbit and to, you know, right formation and to do some of those tasks Well, I now focus on what a human is good at, right? And so that right there is, I think, the opportunity... Um, that AI really presents us. And we also need to be mindful of um, how that autonomy is um, going to, uh, it's going to be a challenge Uh, as adversaries, competitors, other people um, start trying to apply maybe kinetic effects and maybe other things uh, in a way that is haphazard or rushed. And so we, we need to be ready to always stand by our principles, um, but still be able to counter any type of threat that is uh, you know, developed um and being deployed um in in let's just say bad ways.
0: Yeah, absolutely. No, that's a, that 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 sums it up for me. Um and actually, you know what, this um this is a really nice way to lead into question four as well, because you were talking about that and the whole integration thing in the future. So, um, in a past episode, I had a guy called, uh, call sign rain, John waters. He was the F 16 demo pilot, wicked guy, really, really cool person. You know, when you get an F 16, you see the videos of him doing that stuff. He, that guy rips it around. He is a, he's a bit of a legend so i'm um, shout out to, to rain but um, i remember when i when i spoke to him it was around the 50 mark i think and i was kind of getting into the aviation stuff at that point wasn't was quite new to it all and i'd kind of heard a few rumors and a few like stories here and there about the whole ai thing and fighter jets and this sort of stuff and i asked him so uh, I asked him if he thought there would always be a pilot in the cockpit or is AI going to kind of take over eventually. And he said that he thinks there will always be a pilot in the jets, but it's like that it will have like AI flown wingmen that assist, for example, the F-35, for example, I want to ask you the same question. So do you think we will always have need for human fighter pilots in the sky or is the future probably going to be in AI stuff? Yeah.
1: Yeah. Uh... So first off, uh, Rain is awesome—not just a world-renowned pilot, but he's a fantastic and thoughtful human. Um, I'm a, a big fan. Um, it's hard to say how aviation and our society, for that matter, you know, will look in the coming years. Um, but what I do think Rain is hitting on, and I completely agree with, is that uh, human-machine teaming is where it's going to be at. I just don't know where that human is going to be sitting. Um, I do think there's a world. Where um, the human may not be in a, the fighter aircraft all the way out front. Um, and maybe that looks like an F 35 initially with uncrewed wingmen. I mean, this is all philosophical at this point, um, you know, but that idea of like, yes, we could have uncrewed systems where you have a fighter pilot like monitoring, managing that. Um, but then what's to say that that operator can't fall back into like a wedge tail or E7? or couldn't fall back into some type of operation center, or, you know, be on the ground somewhere, be on a boat somewhere, you know, like that operator may over time um, kind of be transported uh, to a different location and not in a cockpit. And I could see, I mean, in my personal opinion, yeah, I could see a future where you have more um, separation between uncrewed systems and their human controller. um I think we need to be mindful of how autonomy and that's autonomy and AI enabled autonomy, but just autonomy in general, how autonomy is going to play out in our battle space and what that will look like um because i'm I'm very uh, watch of what's going on with um the the war between Russia and Ukraine right now, and I think that's very educational for all of us to be aware of, like how that conflict has been unfolding and where autonomy plays in that conflict and how that should be informing, you know, our approach to um, these type of systems and countering the t- some of the systems that we're, that we're seeing. Um, but kind of more specific to your question, I, I do think that uh, we're gonna have to figure out how to get the crude, uncrude thing correct and it's going to take some time. So I don't think in the foreseeable future, you're going to be taking a pilot out of the immediate community of uncrewed vehicles. I mean, right now, we're figuring out how crude and uncrewed go together, right? Like how how does a human, because I can create an autonomous system that fly by wing. I don't need even AI to do that. Um, you know, and I can go tell it to maybe do very narrow, Uh, missions, once again, not even AI enabled, but just autonomous. And now you can bring in AI and maybe it starts doing some predictions or prescriptions of what it should do. You give it a loose like, hey, go do this. And it's going to go try to do a mission set up somehow in that scenario. Um, I think we're still figuring out those interactions, right? Like what does that type of relationship look like? Um, What does governance look like in that scenario? So one reason uh, down here at Eglin, we're developing uh, AI-enabled autonomy too. Like we are doing that with the XQ58 program. I don't have a picture of it, but people can go Google it. Uh, it's a really great um, uh, like test bed, if you will, as we're trying to figure out what does that look like. And so when you have semi-autonomous flying, there's an operator on the ground controlling the aircraft. It, they technically don't have to be on the ground. They could be in another cockpit and they're they're controlling... Like how it flies, so you know it is the the throttles and the stick, uh, but from far away. Autonomous flying is what you'd imagine when we lose contact with our one of our drones, right? It it knows it's not being controlled by a human, and so it flies a predetermined, deterministic, predetermined like orbit. Maybe it goes back and lands. You know, it does things like that. That's autonomous. And now there's the next level, which is the AI agent autonomy which is now the AI agent deciding how it's going to do certain things. So when an autonomous drone loses contact with a ground operator, it knows like this is a throttle setting. This is the air spe- speed, These are the bank angles I'm going to fly. Well, an AI enabled autonomy is actually knowing it's supposed to do a mission and it has to figure out how to do that mission. So that's the AI agent like doing that mission. So we're trying to figure out what, once again, what does that look like? And when we're developing how we make sure that that drone isn't going to do something crazy, is we basically make it so if it asks for too much, so maybe it asks for this AI agent, right? Think, Think about it in that sense. If it asks for like 90 degrees of bank, but you only want the AI agent to be able to fly 60 degrees of bank, it'll immediately turn off the AI agent, right? It's completely protected from that system doing anything like beyond what you as a human. Put into it. Those are the guardrails that we're talking about. So we're right now figuring out what do those guardrails look like? How do we um, ensure that that type of autonomy as it's flying on a wing is going to be one doing no harm, right? And then doesn't interfere with the mission by doing, uh, you know, something that we really don't want it to like flying upside down and backwards, you know, like things that were like, well, that's just confusing, <laughs> it's confusing us the operators of what it's doing so we want to do anything like that and then we want it to be able to do its mission um and so i think that type of approach to this testing is absolutely necessary right we're kind of protecting um the ai agent from doing anything bad and i don't mean nefarious bad of course nefarious bad is part of that i mean like doing anything that we don't want it to but by putting like a bubble around it um, of autonomy, but developing what that looks like, those interactions, and then how that autonomous system is going to um, actually opt to the the operator in those scenarios. And that is advancing. And I think that is going to be a really cool future um, that we have to look forward to. And, and now the pilot being taken out of that, I don't, Once again, I don't foresee that happening anytime soon because we still have a lot of work to do to get us to a point where we have the justified confidence in the system that it is going to perform the way that we want it to, as well as, you know, sharing the right data to, uh, um, you know, the rest of the, the, the network, if you will, that's connected into our
0: systems. Wow, <laughs> it's an interesting future that's coming along. That's for sure. Um, actually, something interesting that you you kind of touched on there as well was war in Ukraine. So, um, I think the last thing I kind of want to ask you as well. Um, so obviously, looking at the news and stuff that I've seen in, in Ukraine, is they've actually been using quite a lot of of drones there, and it's been very effective. You know, there's a lot of Russian warships and stuff that have been sunk in the Black Sea as a result of that, and. I'm going, to, I'm going to feel ridiculous talking about this, yeah, talking about a PlayStation games to, to to you. But I, I, there's this game that came out a couple of years ago, it's Ghost Recon Breakpoint or something, and I, I was playing that. And it was based around kind of drones and AI integrated. So you'd have like rotor winged the kind of drones we see today operated by people but unified with drones and that had like ground attack drones and these drones would often have swarms as well and they'd often have and assist for example teams of ground troops and everything too so obviously you kind of touched on it there but how far out are we from kind of seeing like proper military sort of combining of drone ai and it's you know that's going to be the thing like how far out do you think that kind of thing really is now yeah, I, I,
1: so I won't, Louis, I won't go into specifics about like how far out we are on doing things or certain capability that we do or don't have with regarding to autonomy. Um, I, I will tell you, you know, beyond the XQ58, like work that we were doing that I kind of alluded to um, earlier. I'll tell you, like, this is uh, our future. Like we need to understand as a society, as a military, as a world, right that autonomous capability and i'm not even talking about ai enabled i'm just talking about like good old run-of-the-mill deterministic autonomy um and then on top of that ai enabled autonomy but autonomous capability um is going to be a part of our battle space from here on out right It, it once again has amazing potential it is uh also something that we need to understand more fully um not just the technical aspects because we the technical aspects of the quadcopter drones, like that's pretty well known, but the other aspects of it, like, is it morally like all right for these drones to have kinetic effects, right? That is a philosophical, you know, conversation that we need to have. Um, I will tell you that what's super important is our partnerships, right? Like if we really want to address this autonomous future that we're kind of moving into now, we've got to work together with our partners. We need to work together with not just our international partners, which is super important, but I mean like our industry partners, our academic partners, our competitors, right? Like we need to figure out um, what this is going to look like uh, in a very collaborative, as much as we can be collaborative fashion, uh, because there's a lot of conversations to be had about what does warfare look like in 10 years? Um, And I think that we have to do that now because- Uh, We're recognizing that this technology uh, has certain potential uh, that we need uh, to know how to um, use or not use, uh, how to apply in certain situations. And I I fear that we're not doing enough in like really uh, as a society. So we're doing a lot in the military and trying to drive those conversations, be transparent with the way we're approaching it. I'm just saying, as a society, I don't think we're doing enough in fully uh, grasping the realities of that future, and then having the discussions about how to best shape that future for the sake of humanity, right? So really, um, really important question that you're you're raising. Because I too, as a spectator, watching what is unfolding, am like, man uh there's we need to figure out like how is swarming uavs going to be a part of our future battle space right and um i think that what what i'm watching on you know the news and everything else that's going on makes me realize that it's a conversation that we absolutely have to have
0: damn well i think i think that's a good way to finish out there right there um well, I mean, look, that's been the four questions for today. Obviously, this has been an amazing chat. I've learned a hell of a, a lot. But uh, before we wrap this up, it's time for what I like to call the shameless plug. So, Cinco, feel free to take a minute and promote anything that you're working on, your social media, anything you want people to take a look at or just something that you believe in or you feel people need to uh, go and have a read up on or something. Yeah.
1: Well, Louis, it was it was great being with you. It was an honor to be able to share my, my bias perspective um you know something that i've grown passionate about um and so my shameless plug um i think i would say a, a couple words here one would be for your listeners to go learn about ai to demystify ai it's not magic it is math right um two we need people to serve and i don't mean in the military like i mentioned in the beginning I knew I wanted to serve. I didn't know how, right? But I knew that that, that was just going to be a part of how I live my life. And it doesn't need to be like full time service, but I'm we need people to serve. Serve your serve your uh, city, serve your nation, right? And that may be in the military, that may be in a nonprofit, maybe in a church, that may be in you know, the Red Cross, like, you don't know, maybe it's just giving blood, maybe it's just helping out some students at your school. But, but this whole future, like this kind of unknown autonomy battle space that I just was, you know, talking about and like cool things, but also maybe some scary things. Um, I think a lot of it is put in perspective, when we um, understand the humanity of the person around us, Right? And we get that understanding and that perspective by serving, by serving them, by serving, you know, the the folks that we're around um, and understanding that if we want to continue um, enjoying the freedoms that our Constitution uh, provides and really the freedom of Western democracies, uh, we need to be willing to serve in some fashion. Right. And so my plug is I want people engaged and I want them to realize that um, just like I did, you know, 25 years ago. Right. That freedom is not free. Um, And uh, service like at the end of Saving Private Ryan, like like I said, this it was hugely impactful. Right. Like we have been given something that we cannot abdicate our responsibility to freedom uh, by being distracted by other things. We need to go serve. And uh, I just think th- that people need to say that more often because this doesn't happen by by chance. It happens by people stepping up and uh, and, and putting themselves out there to serve. Once again, not necessarily the military, in some fashion, uh, go learn and serve the people that, uh, that you're around
0: it's been fantastic Cinco and thank you guys for listening this has been episode 95 and if you'd like to listen to the past episodes go and have a look at our channel and if you'd like to listen in for the future ones make sure to hit that subscribe button and spread some love by leaving a like and a comment signing off for now fights on and good night see you next time